0: Friends, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me to Luke chapter 18, as we're going to continue on in our series in Luke, and today we come to the story of the rich, the rich young ruler. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30 will be our focus this morning in the gospel according to Luke. And let's give our attention now to God's Word This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 18. And a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or wife Or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, help us to hear the word of God with ears of faith. Make us humble, Father underneath Your Word. Make us ready to believe and obey and respond. We pray for grace, God. We pray for illumination from the Holy Spirit. I pray You would keep me from error. I pray that You would equip all of Your people, Lord, with the discernment that we need to hold fast to the truth in the midst of evil days. We pray this, Father, confident that You hear us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Friends, our passage today is the culmination of a theme that has been building for a few weeks. The theme concerns how sinners like us can come into the presence of God, and it's been building since the beginning of the chapter. In verses 1 to 8, for example, the parable of the persistent widow taught us to approach God with persevering faith that looks to God's character. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in verses 9 to 14 reminded us that self righteousness is sinking sand. The only solid rock to stand upon is the mercy of God. And then Jesus' welcome to children in verses 15 to 17 called us to humble, dependent faith. So this has been the theme since the beginning of the chapter. It's been building to this point. How can sinners like us come into the presence of God? and find acceptance rather than destruction? The answer is only through humble, dependent faith that relies solely upon God's work for us and not at all upon our own work. And in one sense, friends, that's exactly the point of today's text. The rich ruler brings this theme in Luke 18 to a climax. The rich ruler is not like the tax collector who relies only on the mercy of God. The rich ruler is like the Pharisee. He stands on his own performance, his own good works. What's more, the rich ruler is not like a child. He does not come to God in humble, dependent faith. He comes boastful and proud, confident that he has done enough to inherit eternal life. He's not like the tax collector. He's like the Pharisee. He's not like the little children. He's like the boastful man. In all of these ways, then, the rich ruler in this text is bringing together the teaching of Luke chapter 18. And that is the value of this passage, friends. The Bible specializes in repetition so that we'll get the point. That's the value of this text. The truth of Jesus' parables that began the chapter, that truth is now lived out before us in flesh and blood with this rich young ruler. At the same time though, this is also the challenge of this text. Like last week, much of this passage is straightforward in terms of interpretation. We read the verses, we read that the ruler loves his money more than God, and then we are quick to conclude, well, I'm glad that I'm not like that guy. I don't worship my money more than Jesus, so I don't have to be concerned with these verses. And at that moment, friends, at that moment when we think that this passage is not talking to us, at that very moment, we ought to recognize our error. Scripture is always speaking to us. We don't so much interpret the Bible as the Bible interprets us. Scripture is always exposing our hearts before the face of the living God. And that's true in this text. Idolatry like with the rich young ruler, is common to every human heart, to yours and to mine. Trusting in other saviors, whether it be money or physical health, is a stumbling block to every sinner. And that means the rich ruler is you and me. It's an exhortation to all of us. Don't dismiss this passage simply because the details don't look like your life. Instead, we have to humble ourselves under these kinds of passages. And we have to recognize that this real-life encounter between Jesus and a rich young ruler is saying something about you, and it's saying something about me, and therefore we ought to listen. Of course, that raises the question, what is this passage saying about you and me? What is the unchanging meaning of this text that intersects with our lives? Well, I'm glad you asked. To answer that, we're going to focus on three encouragements that are present in this passage. Three encouragements. Each one, in its own way, encourages us to do what Luke 18 wants us to do, and that's express humble, dependent faith in Christ as the only way to come into the presence of God. So it's three encouragements to saving faith in Luke chapter 18. Let's consider each one in turn the first encouragement is actually the negative example from the rich ruler himself in verses 18 to 23 we ought to note the poverty of self-reliance the poverty of self-reliance the scene begins rather quickly as the ruler approaches Jesus with a significant question notice verse 18 and a ruler asked Jesus good teacher What must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke identifies the man as a ruler, so it may be that he was an official in the local synagogue. That's not entirely clear. But what is clear is that this is a man of influence. He's wealthy, as we're going to learn later. And he probably has a reputation for being very pious, very devout. So this isn't some average Joe that walks up to Jesus on the street with a question. This is a man whose reputation would demand a hearing. Even more than the man's reputation, however, it's his question that ought to get our attention. He asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life in this context is the same thing as entering the kingdom of God. It's the same as experiencing God's salvation. Eternal life is being counted as God's child and that means this is the right question to ask it's the right question in fact Jesus's entire ministry has urged people to recognize that this is the question of life Jesus preaching announces the arrival of the kingdom Jesus's miracles reveal the presence of the kingdom so the rich ruler is absolutely right in the question that he asks Eternal life is only found in the kingdom of God, and so the ruler wants to know, how do I inherit that life? How do I get into that kingdom? It's the right question. And yet, Jesus' response reveals that the ruler is misguided. His aim is correct, but his approach is wrong. This becomes clear in the ensuing dialogue where Jesus exposes the true state of the ruler's Notice how the Lord Jesus does this. First of all, Jesus challenges the ruler to see the reality of God. Look again at verse 19, where Jesus asks his own question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Friends, that's a brilliant beginning on Jesus's part. Why? Because he's shifting the perspective of From the ruler to God. You see, the ruler's starting point is entirely wrong. He's thinking about eternal life in relationship to himself. What must he do? How can he enter? But eternal life is found only with God, who alone is good. And therefore, if the ruler truly seeks eternal life, he has to reset his perspective. He has to start at a different place he must reckon with the reality of God and what that means for his life. Since God alone is good, there's no way for the ruler to earn his way into the kingdom of God. Since God alone is good, the only hope, even for a wealthy person, is the mercy of God. So do you see the shift that's occurring in Jesus' question? The ruler thinks eternal life is a reward that you get for living well. But that's because his view of God is too low. He thinks of God as a small thing. He thinks of God like he would think of himself. And so that's why Jesus starts where he does. Before this goes any further, the rich ruler needs to reckon with the reality of God. Only God is good. Along with that, Jesus also challenges the ruler to reckon with the reality of Himself. (laughs) His His own supposed righteousness. Remember, this whole dialogue is intended to expose the ruler's heart. So notice the standard Jesus sets. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus is not saying that you can inherit eternal life by keeping the law. That's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, Jesus is engaging the ruler on his own terms in order to expose his error. This ruler lives underneath the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, submission to God was demonstrated through obedience to God's commandments. In other words, in other words, the will of God for the rich young ruler is not hidden from him. If he wants to know how to find God, Jesus is saying, you already know. Obey God's Word. Keep the commandments. He's not hiding from you. It's right there. Do it. You'll notice in the text that Jesus has only cited what is sometimes called the second table of the law. The second half of the Ten Commandments. The commandments explicitly related to loving one's neighbor. Is this because Jesus ignores the first half of the law? The commandments that focus on loving God? Hardly. Jesus is not going to ignore the first half of the law. He's going to get to love of God soon enough. Again, He's setting the ruler up to see the error of His ways. And that error begins to reveal itself in the ruler's answer. Notice his self-confidence. Verse 21. And the ruler said, All these I have kept from my youth. Leon Morris, in his helpful commentary, says that the ruler's answer in verse 21 is not outlandish. He may have indeed pursued a rigorous approach to righteousness. So his answer is not outlandish. But, as Morris points out, his answer is superficial. It is superficial. It only focuses on outward performance. His answer neglects the heart. This is the ruler's error. He thinks that eternal life is a reward he can get for what he has done. He has reduced obedience to bare outward action. Forgetting that true obedience has to begin at the heart. So, with this in mind, think back to the ruler's question in verse 18 What must I do to inherit eternal life? Think back to his question. What is he really seeking from Jesus when he asks that question? He's not seeking instruction, he's not confused, he's not seeking instruction. Rather, the ruler wants assurance that he's already done enough. He wants confirmation that his righteousness is enough to get him into the kingdom of God. But that's the ruler's problem, isn't it? He doesn't see the reality of his own righteousness. His standard's too superficial. His view of God is too low. His view of himself is too high, and he's missing it. He stops at what he does when he needs to press deeper to examine what he loves. Whom he trusts and what he depends upon. And that's where Jesus goes in his final word to the ruler. This whole conversation has been setting the ruler up for this very point. Notice verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow Me. Sell everything, give it away, and follow Me. That's what Jesus says. It's a stunning demand. It's a radical demand. And it is essentially the call to discipleship. That's what I want you to take away from this verse. When Jesus tells this man to sell everything and give it away, He's calling him to discipleship. It's the call to discipleship. The way to eternal life is found Only in allegiance to Jesus, expressed through faith. He calls the ruler to follow Him, to be a disciple. Now, you might ask, how is this discipleship? I don't see the word discipleship in verse 22. This just sounds like a very extreme demand from Jesus. Where's the discipleship? That's a good question. So think back to Luke chapter 9, verse 24 where Jesus called His disciples to take up the cross. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. Okay, you remember that? Now ask yourself, where is the rich ruler's life found? In his possessions, in his money, in his wealth. That's where his life is. So when Jesus says to him, sell everything and give to the poor, he's saying, lose your life in order to save it. It's the call to discipleship. Verse 22 is a call to faith. There is no salvation by works in verse 22. Jesus does not mean if you sell everything, then you'll earn your way into heaven. He means trust me. And the way that you prove that you trust me is give your life away. Lose your life and you will save it. It's a call to faith. The ruler must trust that Jesus, not His money, not His works, not His merit, will give Him eternal life. But then comes the tragedy. Verse 23. It's a horrible, horrible verse. Verse 23. When the rich ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. How rich, we ask. It doesn't matter. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter how rich he was. The number in his bank account is not the point. The status of his heart is the point. The ruler trusts in his wealth, thinking that his money makes him righteous in God's sight. And so this is the grand truth that the rich ruler misses. He needs mercy, not merit. He needs mercy to get in the kingdom of God, not money. He does not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. His adherence to the law is not nearly as perfect as he thinks. And that's because no one can keep the law perfectly enough to get into the kingdom of God. The rich ruler rejects the call to discipleship because he loves his treasure on earth more than He loves treasure in heaven. Friends, this is a picture of the human heart. I said at the outset that this passage is saying something about you and about me. This is a picture of the human heart. By nature, we love to put our confidence in ourselves. What we do, how we perform, what we have achieved, we are naturally drawn to self-reliance. But the call of the Gospel begins not with self-reliance, but with self-denial. We must deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus. What does that mean except utter and complete dependence upon God? The call of the Gospel doesn't begin with self-reliance. It begins with self-denial. Remember, the cross is an instrument of death. So, to take up the cross is to lose your life. It's to die to every attempt to save yourself, whether it's your merit or your money. To take up the cross is to repent of that natural tendency to be self reliant and to confess that our only hope is Christ's work for us. Friends, this is why humility, humility, lowliness, meekness is a prime virtue in the Christian life. Let me say something controversial to you this morning. Anything that pushes you away from self-reliance is good for your soul. Anything that pushes you away from self-reliance is good for your soul. Anything that causes us to see ourselves for who we truly are should deepen our love for the Gospel. So don't begrudge those moments when God's Word brings you low in His presence. Don't rush past those quiet moments where the Holy Spirit leads you to realize that your best works are literally nothing compared to God. Don't rush past that. Listen, part of the danger of our therapeutic culture is that we are very quick to mute so much of the Spirit's work in our lives. Conviction over sin doesn't feel good. Being humbled under the mighty hand of God is not enjoyable. At least not in the moment. But in our day and age, we reject those things so quickly that we risk muting the Spirit's work. But friends, if we instantly reject those moments out of hand because they feel uncomfortable to us, then what are we left with? Self-reliance, which is foolish. We're left with nothing more than the tropes of a therapeutic age that is leading many people further and further away from God. Listen, we're we're not strong enough, friends, for whatever life throws at us. Laura and I were watching the Olympics last night, and it was nauseating how every commercial wanted to convince me that I'm actually way better at everything than I think I am. We're not good enough. We're not fierce enough, or brave enough, or strong enough, no matter what the latest Nike ad tells you. You're not enough. We're not the people we've been waiting for. We're nothing in and of ourselves. And we live only by the mercy and grace of God. So let's not be too quick to mute the Spirit's work. Anything that pushes us away from self-reliance is actually a really good thing for your soul. Why is that? Because as the rich ruler shows us, self-reliance is a poor substitute for depending upon God. For humble and dependent faith. The second encouragement to faith comes right in the aftermath of this conversation with the rich ruler. In verses 24-27, to we ought to see the power of God alone to save. The power of God alone to save. As the ruler is confined to his sadness... Jesus makes a general remark to the crowd. Notice verse 24. Jesus, seeing that He had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, this is a core message in Jesus' preaching. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what He's saying. And the reality is that earthly treasure, material wealth... Prosperity can be a powerful hindrance to humble, dependent faith. And to emphasize this difficulty, Jesus employs some hyperbole in verse 25. Look again at verse 25. Listen to the Lord's statement. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been a lot of attempts to explain what appears to be an absurd statement from Jesus. A camel can't go through the eye of a needle, so Jesus must mean something else, some people would say. One popular suggestion is that the eye of a needle is the name for a city gate in Jerusalem that camels would have a hard time going through. That's doubtful. That's rather a subtle interpretation. And if you haven't noticed in his teaching, Jesus rarely does subtle. Instead, the absurdity is the point. Jesus knows that it's impossible for, the, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and that's why He uses the image. The absurdity is the point. It is impossible. If you trust in your wealth, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God and receive eternal life. Again, this has been a consistent theme in Luke's gospel. Jesus wants us to think biblically about our possessions. Luke 6:24, "Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation." Luke 12:15, "Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions." Luke 16:13, "You cannot serve God and money." It's a consistent theme in Jesus' preaching. It's all through this Gospel. So before we go any further in our exposition, we ought to pause here for just a moment. I don't want to dismiss these verses out of hand. There is a sense in which verses 24 and 25 apply directly to all of us. We live in a very wealthy country. And while we may not have the wealth of others around us, in this country, we are incredibly wealthy compared to the rest of the globe. We are exponentially wealthy compared to people down through human history. That's not to make us feel shameful. Prosperity, that prosperity is a blessing from God, to be sure. He's to be thanked for that. But it does come with a note of spiritual caution, friends. Of all the things that can rival Christ for our allegiance... Wealth is at the top of the list. Money, security, prosperity. As we see with the rich ruler, wealth is a powerful idol. Prosperity is a pervasive, false savior that lures us into thinking our salvation is found in our purchasing power or our portfolios. That's the world that all of us live in, to some degree. All of us live in that world. So, when Jesus says that it's difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, we ought to pause for at least a moment in our frenetic paced lives and ask ourselves a few questions. Am I trusting in my material prosperity? If I lost everything today, would it shake my confidence in Christ? Is my confidence in my wealth or in my Savior? Am I hopeful for the future because of what I own or because of who owns me? The Lord Jesus. Listen, I'll be honest with you, friends. I have a a spreadsheet that I keep for praying about my life because there's a lot I need to pray for and if I don't organize it, I get lost. And every day has a different particular sin that I ask the Lord to help deliver me from and keep me from. And I will be honest with you that in studying Luke, particularly the last several chapters, I've gone back to that sheet and added materialism and consumerism to my regular list of things I ask God to keep me from. It's the air we breathe, and it's a danger to our souls. So before we just breathe past, Jesus said, Say, oh, he's just being hyperbolic. That's just Jesus trying to get people's attention. Before you just scoot on past, at least pause for a second and ask, where is your confidence in what you own or in who owns your life? Where is your hope? What do you treasure? Back to the exposition. The crowd understands Jesus' point. They understand the impossibility of what He's saying. So they ask the right question. Look at verse 26. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? That's the right question. In Jesus' day, wealth was considered a sign of God's favor. But Jesus is now saying that it's impossible even for wealthy people to be saved. If that's true for wealthy people, Jesus, then what about everybody else? Who in the world can possibly be saved if this is true? That's what they're asking. It's the right question. And Jesus answers. It's such a powerful answer. Look at verse 27. But Jesus said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Hear me clearly on this. No matter your status in this life, salvation is always God's work, not yours. Whether you are wealthy or destitute, salvation is always a miracle of grace, never an achievement of merit. If anyone is saved, it is always and only God who does it in every instance. And I want to be really clear on this point. When Jesus says salvation is possible with God, you see that word there? When He says it's possible... He is not saying that God makes salvation generally possible and then sits in heaven awaiting the final outcome as though it were up in the air. That's not what He means. There is no note of contingency in verse 27. God doesn't do contingent scenarios. That's not what possible means. Rather, possible in verse 27 has to do with power, not contingency. Jesus says that it's impossible... For man to save himself because we're powerless to do so. On the contrary, salvation is possible with God because only God has the power to bring the dead to life. Only God has the power to overcome that natural idolatry of the human heart that wants to be saved through all of my stuff. So think of the apostle Paul's statement in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's the same thing Jesus is saying here. Or actually to put it better, Paul is quoting is Paul is summarizing Jesus, not Jesus summarizing Paul. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Salvation is possible only because of God's work and never because of ours. And at the risk of a massive understatement, this should be a great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. This should be a great encouragement to us. If you are a Christian this morning, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone, your salvation rests on God and not on you. You did not get yourself into the faith, you do not keep yourself in the faith. And you will not bring your faith to completion on the last day. God does those things, brothers and sisters. Not you. Salvation is God's work, not ours. So I guess that means that I can just sit back in my recliner at home and not do anything and just let God do everything else, right? No. Wrong. Because God's power is at work in your salvation, you can take up God's Word and read. You can labor in prayer. You can fellowship with the saints. You can confess your sin and pursue holiness. You can do all of those things because God's work is the foundation of your working. God's work is the foundation of your response. You strive because God works. You trust because God works promise. Far from being a discouragement to faith, this emphasis on the sovereignty of God's power is actually the key to perseverance. Because I know God will not fail to save me, I trust the gospel. I take up his word. I pray. And I come and I fellowship with you people, my brothers and sisters in the Lord. So what should you do tomorrow? Practical question, as we consider this passage, what should you do tomorrow in order to not rely on yourself and trust in God's power? What should you do? Surely it should be something just like mind-blowingly unique and new. No, you should read the Bible. You should believe the Gospel. You should pray. You should confess your sin. You should do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Why? because that's where the power of God is working to keep you and save you and bring you into the kingdom. God's work is the foundation of your working. You do those things because you trust that God's power is present in them to keep you in the salvation that He alone can accomplish. Rather than rely on ourselves, we trust only in the power of God to save At the same time, that kind of Christian life is difficult. The cost of discipleship is high. Where then do we find the strength to press on in faith at those points? Where's the encouragement? Where's the encouragement when it is difficult to walk by faith and the, and the cost of discipleship weighs upon us? Where's the encouragement? The answer is in our third point from verses 28 to 30. The encouragement is this. It's the promise of a greater treasure. That's the final encouragement to faith. It's the promise of a greater treasure. Peter, as he so often does, speaks up on behalf of the disciples. Peter asserts that the disciples are not like the rich young ruler. They have counted the cost. Notice verse 28. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. Now, Peter, as you know, puts his foot in his mouth a lot of times, but this is not one of those instances. At this point, Peter is right. He's right. The disciples have made a costly decision to follow Jesus. Peter left his business. James and John left their father with the hired servants in order to follow Jesus. Matthew left his lucrative career. The disciples, at least at this point, have counted the costs and are following the Lord. So Peter's question is seeking assurance. If salvation is impossible with man, what does that mean for us, Jesus? Is there something lacking in our following you? We gave gave up everything to follow you. Are we missing something? That's Peter's question. And Jesus' answer is in the form of a promise. Listen again to the Lord, starting verse 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Friends, notice how eternal life bookends the passage. Verse 18, eternal life. Verse 30, eternal life. Those who lose their lives to follow Christ find eternal life with Christ. To say it another way, the cost of discipleship is worth it. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. The cost of discipleship is worth it. Treasure in heaven far outweighs the loss of any earthly treasure. The cost of discipleship is worth it. But what does Jesus mean when He says that those who leave behind their family will receive much more in this time, What is that about? Well, if you remember back in chapter 14, Jesus said, No one can be My disciple unless he hates his father and mother and brother and sisters and follows Me. The point was that if you're going to be a disciple, Christ has to have your highest allegiance. So verse 29 is simply repeating that same discipleship principle from chapter 14. But still, what does Jesus mean when he says those who lose, even their family, will receive many times more in this time. What does he mean? Well, think about the family of God in the church. How do we address one another? As brothers and sisters. To whom do we pray? To our Father in heaven. Are those relationships the same as our blood relationships on earth? No, but Jesus' shocking point is that those relationships are, in some sense, better. They're better. So yes, to follow Christ may cost you your earthly relationships, but the gain far outweighs the loss. The gain is the family of God in the church. The gain is Christ, our older brother, the gain is God our Father. I don't mean to sound glib at this point. I hope I never sound glib preaching to you. The cost of discipleship is high and it's true that it is costly. And yet, and yet hear the words of the Savior right here in this verse. The cost is little compared to the eternal weight of glory. The cost is small compared to the treasure in heaven. In that sense, you can think of Jesus as saying to Peter, remember Peter, that losing is only the prelude to gaining. Death is the precursor to life. Suffering paves the way to glory. That's the Christian life, Peter, don't forget it. Losing is the prelude to gaining. Every cost is met with a much greater treasure. And listen, that's the, re- that's the tragedy of the rich young ruler. He preferred the treasure of this world at the expense of treasure in heaven. He traded every spiritual blessing in the heavenly praises for things that moth and rust can destroy. That's why it's sad. If you're not a Christian today, And that simply means that you are not repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone to save you. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to impress upon you that the Gospel is an unthinkably rich promise of life and treasure with God in Christ. Eternal life is given to those who trust in Jesus. Treasure that cannot be corrupted or stolen is given to those who come to Christ in faith. If you are not a Christian this morning, then God's Word right now is calling you to see the greatness of His heavenly treasure in Christ. Lay down the foolish pursuit of the world. It's going to burn in the end. God sets before you this incredibly glorious promise Turn away from all of the lackluster attempts to save yourself. Confess your sin and do what the foolish, sad, rich young ruler would not do. Lose everything to bank on Christ alone. Friends, this is what Jesus has been building to the entire chapter. This has been the theme since the beginning. The only way... For sinners like us to come into the presence of God is through humble, dependent faith in Christ. We cannot come through our own works. Self-reliance is a poor way to live. We cannot depend on our own effort. Salvation is impossible for you and me. It's possible only with God. But at the same time, this life of faith is not a fool's errand. It comes with a promise from the Lord. The losing is the prelude... great gain and so Jesus would say to us as we go embrace your dependence upon me embrace your dependence upon me confess your inability to uphold yourself and in doing so you will find in Christ and in his word the strength that you need to hold fast to all of God's good promises amen let's pray Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You that You have not remained hidden from us, but You have revealed Yourself clearly and plainly, and that when we read Your Word, Father, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can understand what it is that You are calling us to do and how You're calling us to respond. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be humble today, that we would recognize, Father, the idolatry that often resides in our own hearts, and that we would be quick to confess that, Father. We pray, Lord, that we would embrace dependence upon You as the way to spiritual growth. We pray, Father, that we would find in Christ our strength and our hope into the end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.